Hi, my name is Elijah, and welcome to my podcast, Songwriting for Songwriters. My special guest today is Steve Knightley. As one half of the duo Show of Hands, Steve Knightley is a UK folk scene national treasure. Show of Hands won the BBC Radio 2 Folk Award. They've sold out the Royal Albert Hall a number of times, built a dedicated and loyal fan base, and he's written some of the most timeless modern folk songs. We spoke about his songwriting process, how he balances narrative songwriting with personal songwriting, his love of listing up for stories to turn into song, his love of folk music and how he got into songwriting, and how he sees the role of a songwriter. So please enjoy this podcast, subscribe, and thank you for being here. Okay, well, joining me on the Songwriting Songwriting podcast today is Steve Knightley. Steve, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, and thank you for, for this uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being my guest. I appreciate it. You're someone who um, I've followed for a long time, and it's obviously because we live in the West Country, you're a, uh, a living legend around these parts. And uh, I was going to ask you, actually, this is the the final tour together, a show of hands, after 30 years. Is that right? It's not so much the final tours. We need a sabbatical. Phil needs a sabbatical. He's, sure. he, uh, he, was, he had a bit of issues, health issues um, earlier in the year. Um, nothing major, but it, it, it gave him pause for thought. And there's so many other things he wants to do, uh, uh, recording projects. He's always been brilliant at mentoring and recording uh, other musicians. Yeah. So I think he wanted to take the pressure off touring a bit, you know, um, yeah. festivals and touring. Uh, he's he's done his fair stint. I'm sure he has. But we'll 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 obviously we'll look at it again and see where we are. But I've got a lot of stuff I want to do. I've been asked to be involved in a string quartet, okay. writing some songs. You know, really? um, I figure you spin enough plates. Yeah, some of them will not break, but yeah. you know, some of them will 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 turn up something. So that's what I want to do. We just did this tour with the historian Michael Wood, Fantastic. and that was brilliant. You know, um, songs of the people. So there's all these other projects, and uh, so we'll see how that goes. So when you when you write for Show of Hands, do, do you feel is it is it my impression is that you write the majority of the songs or bring most yeah. of the songs in and then collaborate? Is that how it works? Yeah, I basically I I bring the songs along and I I tend to bring them along with great big chunky chords, big modal chords, and then Phil decorates it with what instrument he feels uh, works. Fantastic. We never rehearse so much; we just play and play and play, and we evolve a part. And then that slowly solidifies itself. And um, and then after about a year, we record it and try and capture that energy with which we play live, really. So, um, but very, um, obviously, I write bearing in mind the audience that we've got and the, and the palette that we've got as regards acoustic instruments. You know, yeah. we it's fiddles, mandolins, slide guitars, uh, all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah. And I think if suddenly I was to pick up a strap, our audience would be a bit alarmed. Yeah. <laughs> the that doesn't mean I don't want to occasionally, though. Yeah, but what what is it about? Because um, obviously, when I've been researching for the podcast and from what I know, this, you know, you'd be described as or had been described as a folk singer songwriter, someone who grew up playing folk songs and in folk clubs. What what is it about folk songwriting that you love? Um, obviously, I'm sure you love other music too. But what is it that captured your heart, folk songwriting, and and how would you describe or define folk songwriting? Well. We are quite unusual. Most of, not our peers, but if you look at the generation below us, if you look at maybe maybe two generations, if you look at the Lakemans and the Rusbys and the Carthys, yeah. 
and all of those guys in Bellowhead and the Saw Roses, they were all offspring of that folk generation. Yeah. There are people now in their mid seventies, uh, like Seth Lakeman's dad, you know. So um, uh, I'm just going to disconnect that mail, by the way, in case I get any more of those pings. Um, so yeah, that, that, we weren't born into it. We were 14 or 15, 16 in, in East Devon, yeah. and it was a very cool thing to get involved in. It was rock and roll, you know. You had James Taylor, you had Cat Stevens, you had Ralph McTell. They weren't folksy in a sense. No. So if you played an acoustic guitar and if you were a slightly um, disconnected loner and there's all these foreign language students in, in Exmouth, you know, who want you to play at beach parties and, and the people organising the folk clubs are only 10 years above you. Yeah. You can hang out with them, smoke and drink and, you know, party. So it was a scene to get involved in. Sure. And I think if that sets your DNA at that age, yeah. it sort of shapes you for a while. And then, of yeah. course, you get to listen to Dylan and Martin Carthy. And although I strayed most for most of my 20s into rock and roll, I mean, like in on the London scene, you tend to return to what you know, I think, um, having failed at the rock and roll thing by the age of 32, I moved back to Dorset, in fact, near you, Corscombe. And Phil said, look, let's go and do some folk clubs. And um, so I returned to that environment where I learned how to play. Um, and thereafter, it acquires its own momentum, you know. Brilliant. It's, it's, I've, I mean, I've, I've obviously always played acoustic guitar, but I've never, I, I write, I, I would say that sometimes I write kind of folkish songs, but I, mean, <clears> I wouldn't say I'm a folk songwriter, but it, it always seems to me that, that that folk scene is incredibly supportive and, it, and it's very it's it's a very kind of big scene isn't it the folk scene almost yeah. like the heavy metal scene has got like a very supportive um, yeah scene. the folk scene has that as well doesn't it yeah it's very generous actually and if in times of crisis you know they rally around um mm. you know i've been times when my son was ill you know they collect money and they they organize benefits so because it's and also the other thing is we we stay with in the early days we stay with these people you so if you run a folk club part of the deal was that you stayed with them afterwards so exactly. you make friends for life yeah yeah uh, and you that, that means a, there's a lot of bitchiness and moaning particularly around things like the folk awards but generally we we look out for each other and um collaborate where we can um and it's not like there's the one pot that we're all fighting over it's not like there's the record deal that only one band can get. There, there are no record deals. You know? sure, yeah. There are no lottery ticket moments uh, that that you gain and someone else loses. So it's not you're not you're not fighting. Uh, and, and also, there's a different vibe to jazz. It's not quite as um, I think jazz people watch each other uh, in a slightly different way. You know, yeah. uh, that guy can't cut it all because it's so technique based. You know, it's it's you have to be so excellent to play that stuff. Yeah. If someone can't cut it, you'll soon hear. You know. So when you um, there's so early influences. Then you mentioned Dylan and Martin Carthy. That, that who who were your kind of early uh, influences? Who made you pick up a guitar and wanted to and want to write songs? It would be well to pick up a guitar. It would be Bob Dylan. Although obviously, every, when I heard first heard Jimi Hendrix, you know, uh, da, 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 I wanted to do that. Yes. But from a social scene, as I say, in in, in Exmouth, when I was a bit of a loner because my family had moved around a lot, okay. I suddenly found that playing the guitar was a passport to uh, other social scenes that I was sort of excluded from. You know, in a way, if you could play the guitar at a party, so you needed a repertoire. 
So you you go to James Taylor and Bob Dylan, then you discover Bert Yance and, and all that first generation of English blues players, and then all of a sudden you had a repertoire. You then you've got um, Tom Rush, you know, um, what what's that fantastic song? Uh, the, the the Walker Brothers. There, there's a few yeah. on all of those early um, Island albums. There was always a singer songwriter. Yeah. You know, uh, no regrets, no regrets, no tears, goodbye. You know, you learned mainstream songs on acoustic guitar and all of a sudden you had a repertoire and then you start getting gigs with a few friends and it becomes sort of self-sustaining. And then you meet people, you know, you meet your idols, you meet people like Mike Chapman, a fantastic uh, Northern songwriter. You suddenly, uh, then I was at college at Coventry and I was booking these people. You know, yeah. I was booking these people in the days when student unions got funds to book people. Yeah. Dick Gocken, you know, we booked him. He fell asleep on our front room drinking whiskey. You know, these were heroes. <laughs> Again, they're part of that generation 10 yeah. years older. Um, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden they were saying, hey, that's a good song. Uh, well done. You know, you're getting acclaim Great. from uh, people like Martin Carthy or, or Tony Rose or, or, or any of that, that, that generation of folkies. And then you think, gosh, I ought to do more of this because this is how my friends are describing me. Oh, this mm-hmm. is Steve. He's a songwriter. Okay, yeah. I better start writing some songs. So it becomes self-sustaining. You're not quite sure at what point the ball rolls in it with its own momentum, but it does at a certain point. Fantastic. Fantastic. And then it's how you see yourself, and you're not happy yeah. if you're not doing it. You know. Yeah, that's true. Isn't it? I remember there was a certain point where I definitely was decided I'm a songwriter. You know, and that's and and you know, almost saying it was you know, that kind of embarrassing to begin with, but you've got to own it, haven't you? You've got to own what you... Yeah, you do. And I'm always happier saying songwriter rather than... I'm I'm not really comfortable with the word artist so much. I think an artist is... You, you can look at a body of work in a person and say that was an artist. But a lot of these people say, hey, I'm an artist. I'm allowed to be late and not know how much things cost. You know, it's like a lot of it is excusing bad behavior and and, uh and being being unpunctual but but i like the word of being craft storyteller um you know and then maybe you could look at someone's body of work and say that was an artist at work because they were consistent to certain principles and certain values like martin carthy you know uh, i say that's that guy's an artist although his individual songs are not works of art and i don't think he would claim that they were no i think you're right i think songwriter is is a different um you know, for me, I've like, for example, I wouldn't say I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter, and I wouldn't yeah. say I'm an artist. I'm a songwriter, and it's slightly different. I think you're. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We're story, we're storytellers and entertainers. I think, um, yeah, in different styles. I mean, some people do it in a shouty way. Some people do it in a, in a in an edgy way. Some people do it in an intimate or more gentle way. But we're, we are we are telling stories, weaving spells, hopefully. When when you um, played in, in in rock bands or played the kind of pub uh, club circuit, which I've done. Um, to cut through that kind of noise of a bar or a pub, you kind of have to attack it sometimes. Yeah, you do. And, yeah. You know, the kind of, in your songs, and sh- not, not all your songs, but in, the, one of the great things about your songs is the rousing anthemic quality. Um, yeah. <laughs> something that I've had to, I've, you know, which I tried to do as well. And I think some of that, do you think that playing in, in bars and clubs help shape you as a writer did that cutting through getting a song across a kind of bar do you think that may did that have it utterly yeah it's utterly essential um the good thing about pubs and um, we were based in bridport for about right. four years peter okay. wilson just all the way along the south coast yeah. a pub a music bar some of them are very good some of them have a listening audience the the one that used to be the castle hotel in taunton was great rocky raucous audience but they were listening yeah. 
And okay, you can do your Beatles and your Stones and your Pogues and that, but they will book you every six weeks. So if every other song you do one of your own, but in that format of, come on, here's the chorus, blah, blah, blah. The next time it's that slightly more familiar to the audience and you can maybe chuck in a couple more. So by the end of the, you know, of maybe a year of doing those places, you've got about 16 killer songs. Yeah. You go to a folk club with them and it's a bit, whoa, you know, but you go to a festival and that's what happened to Phil and I, we took that repertoire to Cambridge 92 we just blew people away because we had a sound engineer that turned it up to stun and we had all these pub anthems ready to go you know um and uh, as i say it was in the folk clubs that we had to tone it down a bit and also we'll do things like straight away introduce a song over the chords none of this dithering you know pace you know, there's a ballad, now two uppy songs, and then there's a quiet one, now some huge songs. You know, all that sort of stagecraft. Is, that's how the Irish learn, you know, because yeah. they're not in, yeah. in protected environments. That's yeah. how people learn in Louisiana. That's how they learn in, in, in the blues. It's, that's how proper music evolves, I think, in, I in, in a bit of a battle. I think there's something really um important for songwriters to to realize that if you like you say if you go to a, a space where everyone's listening and seated and to listen and it's that way in folk clubs sometimes it's like that's different there's a reverence there but if you've got to go you know in, in a bar and yeah. win over that and put across that energy that is it's a very different thing isn't it but i think sometimes as yeah. songwriters your songs get born when you play live and it's important to kind of let them yeah. float in the air and deliver yeah, and then all of a sudden you can do something completely unaccompanied and, and the the drop in the level brings people in in the same way. You don't always have to drown them out. But again, that, that's something that the Irish musicians know instinctively from all that work they do in public spaces. So, um, yeah, it, it was – we maybe did – six years of that but there comes a point when you 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 have had enough of a of a pub on a saturday night you know you'd rather there was a door price uh, and and at some point you have to make that transition really and we did that um in 94 and uh all of a sudden we were in paid paid environments and small art centers it's a harder harder route now i'm not sure there's so many of those venues out there in the way that there were but uh, that's another story really fantastic i mean you guys have absolutely are known for and have wonderfully kind of carved out and shaped your own destiny and own career and obviously that point of deciding to knock the saturday nights on the head and actually you know sort of do something a little bit differently you know that's 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 that was a wonderful thing for you guys and, and you've kind of gone on to sell out the royal abbott hall and you've you've got a very loyal fan base that you've worked with that have become friends you know like you just said it is maybe different now but, what, but that was a very maverick decision to to maybe play outside the rules of the music industry and actually own it for yourself yeah well there's there's two things you can you can derive principles from necessity and and look back at what you've done as this 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 studied walk down a series of conceptual decisions or you think how the hell are we going to (laughs) survive there is no record company there is no publisher there is no major management or agency and then you once you are self-reliant you try and find that principle from it but at at the time you're just trying to get by Uh, we had this visionary um, sound engineer this australian called gerard o'farrell who now incidentally is back in the country um he was with us as a sound engineer in about 94 95 and we got totally stitched up by a promoter in in the north country 
you know, he paid himself, built in profits. He paid himself petrol, uh, fuel, phone calls. And when Jared got the reconciliation, the door take was about £800 and we got 150 And he said, guys, do you want to be in this world? Mm. He said, because I don't want to be. I could have booked this gig. We could bring our own sound. We could. We don't need any of this. And we said, yeah, okay, Jared, go for it. So he built up our internet profile. We made our own records. And all of a sudden, that becomes self-sustaining. And that's what you do, and that's how you're described. Mm-hmm. But uh, who knows if at any point in time we'd been... Ralph McTell always said if Phil and I had been Irish, we would have been offered a major record deal. <laughs> and who knows, who knows what souls we would have sold to the devil. Well, it's, you know, it's really good good to hear because it's it's refreshing because i suppose if you you know uh you know some people will get into music and then quit after a couple of years because you know they get bored or they you know have have had enough of of the rejection but it's great to see and an example of whether by accident or necessity and i'm sure there was some very good business there as well but it's great to see that it is possible to love what you do and to make it work and to and to have a relationship with an audience and to have a yeah. long-lasting career that's so it's, it's, it's what, yeah. you, what one hopes for i think at the end of the day there was there were principles at work and one of the principles was we had to and we wanted to empower anybody to book us yeah. we didn't work for fees we thought if we're self-contained and someone will, will, will organize feed us maybe accommodate us we'll just take a percentage of what they make and all of a sudden you're playing in places and to people way off the mainstream circuit, either the folk circuit or the, or the concert circuit. The first guy that put on the Albert Hall was just this um, software designer from East Anglia. He put us on in a village hall, and I recognised him as a bit of a player. Yeah. And I said to Richard, what do you reckon? He said, how many on your mailing list? I said, 1,500. He said, okay, you need 700 to break even. I'll back it. Wow, great. So, you know, you, so you meet people like that yeah. um, simply by being outside of a system where a manager is saying, no, they want this, otherwise they're not even going to do your village hall. So by being out there empowering people, we are meeting people who um, open other doors to you. And um, that is very much a feature of now what's happening. You know, in our little world, we're connecting with people who are very senior in their world. It could be the commanding officer of the local regiment who says, look, why don't you come and play in the battalion museum? So all of a sudden you're meeting people at the top of their little pyramid yeah. and, and connecting them up. It's, it's it's really very satisfying when that happens. And it's very collaborative as well, isn't it? You yeah. know, with it's, it's, yeah. it's, and that, like you say, contacts lead to contacts. Well, there's just the magic of saying yes or being open to what comes to yeah. you. And the idea that you, you reach a certain pinnacle and you want to keep it to yourself and not share it and repel all borders, that's not really the way I, I see it working. You know, most people I know... And I meet some people now, as I say, they could be in the military, the clergy, in business or in, 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 in art or whatever it is. If they value music, they want to know you and they want to offer you an environment. Uh, and so it, it, it's really rewarding when that happens. If they don't value music, you are totally invisible. <laughs> you don't exist. You know, you well, are worth- in, in a way that is the kind of in a way a sort of folk tradition or the the wandering minstrels there, there is something in that isn't there like you'd imagine that in back in i don't know medieval days with someone playing a lute he'd go from town to town and maybe get some food and maybe a few coins and would sing songs yeah. you know that's it's very yeah, traditional all of a sudden someone in the court says look you know you can be the court minstrel for and then you get a taste of that world for a bit you know so it is it, it's 
as a musician, you do cross lots of cultural and social and economic boundaries. If you're what you do is valued, um, as I say, or the people that don't value us, we don't meet because we we, they, we don't encounter them. But um, I can think of a lot of examples. For example, Michael Wood, this historian, I mean, a formidable career. Yeah. He loved Cousin Jack. And he said, well, why don't we do a show, Songs of the People? So well, now we've got a guy on stage who's a, who's a household name, simply because in his world, a song that I wrote and what we do has value. And uh, we're going to be doing that at Glastonbury. And and presumably somebody there will say, hey, I've got a lovely little um, medieval museum um, uh, setting. Why don't you come and do that? And as long as your antenna are out there and and you keep wanting to share it, then those opportunities, I think they only increase. They don't they don't decrease. Fantastic. Now, you're 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 known and loved for being a songwriter who addresses, you know, history politics social issues rural issues poverty you know the inequality of life you raise these things and it's and often use narrative songwriting yeah. to do that how much how much of how much of you as as a person your feelings your inner world what's the balance between the kind of the issues and the narrative and you in there how, how do you mix those different voices is it all you do you think or how do you yeah balance? well because I did politics and history, I know that that what consider what you consider the truth is a very flexible thing. It's like the current thing with Ukraine. There's some very, very, very sea change, big forces at work underneath that crisis, and it's not all about baddies and goodies, and it never is in history. And that's one thing that you learn. So I tend not to suddenly. Here's a song about um, Ukraine. You know, I tend to avoid that. It's like nine eleven. I tend to avoid those issues, um, like the like the plague. I mean, the thing about greedy bankers that's that's like ducks in a barrel, <laughs> you know. So I don't tend to get drawn into party politics either. I didn't get drawn into anything about the referendum because mm-hmm. I don't want to lose connection with an audience that might not agree with me. Otherwise, I'm only talking in an echo chamber, you know. But if you sing about um, you know, a song like Santiago working with Chilean musicians. It's obviously that we come from a collaborative and multicultural um, experience, and we value that. So I don't have to point at people and say you're a baddie, yeah. because what seems to be happening now is people say I don't like your opinion, therefore I don't like you. Yeah. Whereas it used to be oh, I quite like you, but I don't agree with you about that, and I, I hate that polarization. Mm. So we have to walk a very tight line. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm going to start to do a song um, called Cutthroats, Crooks, and Conmen um, again. That was that was quite Thatcherite in a in a way, but without being specific. Mm. But uh, I'll, I'll add a verse about the NHS. But again, I'm not going to get yeah. stuck to a particular cause, either the Countryside Alliance, the fox hunting thing. It's much more complex than that. Yeah. And I want to go to a village hall and and, and like Catterstock. And do an anti, a subtle anti-hunting song that they might not have thought of it before, you know. And it's like, I want to be in front of those people and not yeah. maybe ah, no nightly. He just he's one of those, or he's left or right. So, and it's um, it can be complex, and and you can get it wrong, and you can fall off the fence sometimes. But on the whole, uh, it makes economic and um, I think artistic sense just to be slightly outside of it. Yeah, maybe like Dylan has been, you know, in a way you can't pin him down. Um, yeah, I think you're right there because when you listen back, because you know I've I've obviously do research for podcasts and you know that kind of idea came up of you being, you know, um, I think they called you the gravel voiced um, of of the spokesman of, yeah. of the rural 
Oh, yeah. I'll buy that. It's beautiful phrase, but you listen to your stuff and think, okay, well, there's, there's issues here and stuff coming up. But like you said, if you take a song like The Man I Was, that's a very, very beautiful song about being a man. It's not like what I'm trying to say is it's not like, okay, this guy is clearly sporting this political party and he thinks these things about these issues. Although it's there, it's like you said, it's nuanced. Yeah. And you're narrating and going to places which are, I don't know, like you say, it's generous. You're taking your audience with you and you're not sort of, telling them what's bad or good you it often feels to yeah. me like you're telling me a story and in that story i can find you there and some issues as well it's it's, it's a balance like you yeah. say isn't it well the thing about if you come from a folk background you have been the farmer's boy you've been the drummer at waterloo you've been the female uh sailor you've been all those characters in your in your narrative yeah and um you know i make a joke about it no one comes up to you you can sing songs about whaling and wenching and fox hunting nobody thinks it's you and when you write from that it's like for example country life i'm just the guy that can't afford to live in his own village i'm not saying burn second homes necessarily i'm just saying you know the pubs closed down and we don't live there anymore yeah. and i'm singing to people a lot of them will have second homes and they go uh yeah okay mm. maybe yeah. a pause for thought is all you can hope for with people really. yeah sure I think you're right, just maybe catching someone's attention for a second and perhaps changing their perspective through... I mean, good art does that, doesn't it? It doesn't smack you out of the face. It just makes you think for a little bit. Yeah, I think so. So when you're writing a song, how does the song... What's your process? How does the song arrive for you? Is there a kind of way that it happens or is it different each time? What's the kind Um, of song arrive? Occasionally, I have the idea for a song. I have like a... Wouldn't it be... Because I've got working on one at the moment, like do it. You know, because you're surrounded with people who go, oh, I'm going to do this, and I'm thinking, just do it. Jump right in, you know. Maybe you'll sink, maybe you'll swim. Just do it. So they're okay. that's the idea of the song. And I might have a riff. But I got that, right? Okay. So I had that riff for ages. Yeah. And the idea of the song, just do it. Yeah. So now I've got to think, okay, how many other situations can I apply that to? Okay, someone's moaning about their job. Someone is always wanted to ask a girl out you know and do it mate just do it you know someone is always saying i gotta get i gotta get in touch with my old man again you know so uh, so there's the idea of the song i marry it to a little chord sequence that i've got then the hard work is actually shaping the context really uh, and, and so that is a clear example okay um other times um for story songs, you know, I, I've got a song like The Preacher or, or Transported. Yeah. I'm just thinking in my head of what would be a good story to tell someone. I always say, what do you know? What do you see? What do you love? That's my three rules. You're in a pub. You're in, and you see people in the pub. You say, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. This thing came out and it's like, that's a real story being told there, you know. Yeah. And that's possibly more the folk tradition. And, sure. and people tell stories to each other and they get very good at it. And sometimes you take a story and then you you turn that into a song again, like the preacher, you know, the guy who who prays for bad work to uh, bad luck to befall a rival. Put it in Portland in the quarries. Okay, what could happen next? What could happen next? And then I try and find the music for it. So, so I'm always spinning those different ideas for songs. Fantastic. And then at other times, um, less often, there there'll be something like Man I Was or or um, Hook of Love or your mind, I, I just want to be slightly more confessional. Yeah. And say, look, you know, I really regret what happened on a personal level, and this is the way I can maybe <clears throat> not apologise, but account for it. 
beautiful so and you can put them in all those different categories maybe yeah it's good that because i think as songwriters often there's you know as a writer have different voices you know yeah and there's like the love voice the universal love voice or the relationship yeah. love voice. then there's the kind of like i don't know the sort of confessional sort of you know thing so it's good it's good to hear like how because you can really hear that in your writing that you know there's the there's the storyteller there's the kind yeah. of like you said there's a the kind of do it uplifting storyteller yeah. uplifting guy then the confessional thing and that that mix I, think, I guess that's why we all love you is that mix of three things it's not just one writer saying the same thing it's a mixture of three different people which is i think well the voice i hate is the classic yeah we got an album coming out and uh, you know uh, that singer songwriter self-centered we've worked with some people in, and they stood in front of an audience they go you know i was in a bar in uh, in amsterdam like you never are yeah. And suddenly I had this idea like you never had. And this girl came up and like you've never happened, you know, and they elevate their experience yeah. above a load of people. And right in front of them, there's a woman who's raising a disabled kid on her own. There's a guy who's dragged someone out of a car crash as a first responder. There's tales of bravery sitting in front of them that make their pathetic little emotional dramas re totally redundant. Yeah. And, and so I've always avoided that sort yeah. of, there's a certain ego, you know, you spot it, you hear it in a tone of voice. Yeah, and, and it makes me sort of immediately sort of bristle. Yeah. And the folk scene has always been a bit suspicious of that, you know, particularly the, the hardcore, more traditional folk scene. Yeah. They've dismissed a lot of songwriters as, as, as that sort of beast, a bit unfairly, but I'd rather that they, they did that than just lauded, you know, all that self-indulgence because it's, um, yeah, it's a bit much. You know, they, people chronicle their own personal landscape uh, as if it's really, <laughs> you know, as if it's crucial. You know, it, it's so yeah. painful to them. It's going to have to be painful to everyone else as well. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And also you've raised something about the importance of listening, like you say, of whether it's the uh, woman in the audience raising a son on her own or something like, you know, if you get yeah. to listen to fans or listen to people talk, you know, you hear stories and, you know, it's... It, there's a lot of fodder for songs, aren't there? When you open your ears yeah. and listen. And also um, on this tour, on this work we've just done, people come up and say, can I tell you how much that song meant to my late husband? You know, all right, shit. There's a reminder. Don't be glib about this. Don't just, oh, that's good to know. Yeah, oh, that's, no, they're saying something important. You know, yeah. that was something he listened to or they listened to or how they met, or how they courted, or how their kids were born. It's all sorts of things. These songs are, are, are moments in people's lives. Yeah. And it's yeah. easy to forget that. But it's because we meet people that. so personally every yeah. night, they yeah. do remind you of it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of tears and hugging goes on after gigs sometimes. People come up, and, you know, over COVID, things happened in their life, and uh, they lost connection with that for a while. Yeah, and they're very glad that you're, you know, you're still there because you're, you're. The music is a constant, you know. I it's think, a, it's a soundtrack. Yeah, I think you've hit something really on the head there because you know, I guess any any at some point, if you're a musician, like there's a level of like wanting to make it or wanting to be seen to make whatever that is, whether it's a yeah. radio play, an award, or whatever TV yeah. advert, whatever. There's that element which can be exciting and great, and you know, all good, but. When you are told by someone who's gone through something that your song has healed or soothed or has or they've celebrated to it, yeah, it can 
it, it's such a big thing, but it's kind of a tiny thing at the same time. But that's the truth yeah. of songwriting, isn't it? When you yeah. yourself as a as a music fan, when you hear someone's song and it just sums everything up in your life and you put it on repeat or whatever, that is actually yeah. what's happening. It's like we are relating to someone else through a song. And when, yeah. when you've had the opportunity or when you have that gift, I guess, that somebody feels that way about your song, it's, a, it's, it's what we're in it for, isn't it, really? Yeah, but I think it's very important as soon as you walk away to forget that when you start writing the next one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Otherwise, you think, "Oh Christ, how can I, how can I match that?" You know, no. I always say that you, you you have to sort of think it's the best thing ever written, but also be aware that it could possibly be the worst. You know, and you never really know to until it's out there with a life of its own. That's true. You don't know who, which song is going to be the one which is uh, no. taking into people's hearts. Do you? It's just no, just no. carry on being a writer. Yeah, if, yeah. if somebody had never heard your stuff before and you were to say this is a slightly difficult question i guess but if what three songs would you say if you could i don't know if you can say this define you or do you think if defined are you most proud of or do you think kind of define you as a writer if you could put, pull up two or three examples of your songs that you think could do that or introduce people to your songs in that way i think the man i was would be one because I think there's a there's um a poetic sensibility there that everyone will recognise. I think some something like the preacher or Whitaker Fair or the Galway Farmer, a straightforward storytelling song. Yeah. And then it has to be some of like our AIG roots or country life, one of the more shouty songs. So I think that covers the spectrum really yeah. of of what what I'm where I'm coming from. Um, maybe a man I was in Hook of Love or something like that. Um, they're in that songwriter sort of domain in a way or the the one that i was just slagging off but that that's um a, a bit unfair to these people because w w when one of those songwriters gets it right there is nothing more powerful you know yeah. when the person the sound the image the everything is makes this complete statement then it's like then you've got something that's virtually unstoppable it's very rare but when it works you know cat stevens at his best you know yeah, sure. um it, it's it really is something exceptional james taylor at his best or you know it, it, it there's a unity of all those factors going on but um it doesn't always exclude the 90 percent of <laughs> pompousness <Your indulgence. laughs> um how important is it to you when you when you you go either when you're playing on your own or with share of hands you know you're a prolific writer so you're writing all the time how important is it for you to play new songs live um, I should be more prolific, to be honest. Um, I, I I should be doing ten songs a year, really. Okay. Uh, I, 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 there's no reason why I shouldn't be, and 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 people would. Um, Tom Robbins says just write and write and write. And the more rubbish you write, the more chance you get of writing a good one. You know. Um, uh, so I do. I am aware that I'm going out to do some gigs with the same songs and I try and well, the first thing you do is rearrange stuff you've already written, slow it down and change keys and all that sort of stuff. Maybe find a couple of good cover versions. I'm doing a cover version of Fisherman's Blues at the moment, a really slow moody one. Yeah. And, and then you can, you need to put in a couple of new things, yeah. um, even though they might not go down as well or not compromise the gig, but, 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 the last thing people want to hear at a festival is here's a bunch of new songs, for yeah, example. Sure. Yeah. But you've unless you put them in every now and then, you never develop a yeah. a canon uh, of, yeah. of new material, uh, yeah. corpus, as it were. So, so uh, I am aware, uh, I, and I can look at set lists as they go back and think, okay, I'm not going to repeat that. Um, 
in the same way. Sure. Do you um, do you have this is this idea of the muse, and you've explained a little bit earlier on about how you all write different songs, and I've asked this question to each person on the podcast so far, but some people have some far out otherworldly relationship with the muse and other people just see or hear something but what's your feelings about the concept of a muse and how does it show up for you and what's your relationship with it if you have one do you mean like an inner creative spirit or something that inspires you yeah uh, it depends how you define it really doesn't it but um i think what i've got uh, somebody told me this 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 man called philip rawson who lived near me uh, in the wilds near Corscombe, he was a formidable intellectual. He looked like a, a Russian intellectual with a beard down to there. And he came to see me play, and he said, you have a poetic sensibility. And I know some very well-known musicians who don't, yeah. um, uh, but I took that on board, and, and that is my muse, if you like. I want to find a story, and I want to connect it to something that touches as many people. So you generalize the story and you then you become part of a continuum of storytellers and you become a part of, uh, of a continuum. And they could be biblical stories. You know, it could be Cain and Abel. It could be George and the dragon. It could be all of these. Um, and then you're in that context, you know, yeah. and I've never seen myself in that context until maybe the last 10 years. Okay. I've always been slightly anti-spiritual, anti-religious. Okay. But lately I've been putting my, my, what I do in a context because people like Philip Rawson have been coming up to me and also some very, very formidable religious people over the years. Yeah. Uh, they say, you know what you do, don't you? And I go, yeah, I write songs. They go, no, 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 no. You, you're connecting with, and I go, and I've always sort of put it to one side. But now I'm really pleased to be able to put myself in that context of the stories that make us slightly progress as as a species and as as a uh, and as a, as a, um, uh, yeah as people you know you know about sharing about entertaining about um, not exploiting whatever those things are. So if I have a muse, it's that sense of what connects the most people in a poetic way uh, mm -hmm. and in a life affirmative way. Um, uh, and I try and be um, uh, true to that. And I, I you know some people would give it a religious name. Some people would call it various names, but I think it's something that we recognize. And I think the first person that stood up in the mouth of a cave and said to a group of people, listen to what happened and, and engages people. And there's a message in it. And there's something which, um, you know, entertains, but also moves people. Um, I, I think, yeah, there, there is that, that, that spirit which I suppose is uh, as close as I can come to answering your question. Well, that's, that's a really great answer, that, because, you know, I think it's, it's it's a unique answer. It's your answer, and it's a very beautiful way to describe your creativity, because everyone's is different, but that's, that's a very nice way to 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 answer that question. And, and thank you for answering it so eloquently. That's great. Okay, what, what do you... What do you personally love about songwriting? For, for you just, you know, there's this communication, there's the storytelling, there's the the connection with people. What, what does Steve Knightley, what do you love? You, you know, what feelings come up in you when you write a song? What's the, what's the love of it for you? The first thing I love is thank God I can still do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God I've still got that poetic sensibility and that ability to create something that never existed before. Mm. And now is out there. Yeah. 
So when people clap it and sing along, that is so nourishing. You know, that's such a such a great, such a life affirmative thing, particularly on a solo gig, where from the moment it might be a village hall, the moment I'm there, I, I've created a whole world of stories for people, and they go away, and. It's not about your relationship with them. I've often said this. It's about their relationship with each other. Everybody for that time is less isolated, frightened, alone. They've had a collective experience, which without putting it in religious terms, I think is something that we need as a species, a collective reaction. And it could be through poetry. It could be dance or cinema. But you've created this thing of these disparate people that didn't exist before. And everybody, everybody goes away feeling nourished, and you can be tired, and and uh, you can be hung over, and you can have all sorts of stuff going on at home. That's not important. You've made it happen again, and you've made it happen through your songs, and that's yeah. that is an amazing feeling. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I would not want to, I would not want to stop the process that makes that happening over and over again by stopping writing songs. So when you come up with a new four or five songs, and it's still doing it. There is that relief, you know. Yeah. There is that very much that relief. I mean, it's it's it's. I I totally hear you on that. It, it's 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 a it's almost pretentious to call it a gift. It's maybe something. It's maybe a craft, but it's being learned. But sometimes it does feel like receiving a gift rather than one having a gift. It feels like when you write a new song, if it it does that, you're absolutely right. You're going, thank God, I can still do it. Yeah, sometimes yeah. It's like, I don't know where that comes from, but yeah. like it's joyful, isn't it? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think you're right about the not knowing where it comes from. Sometimes it just works its way through you, and I think it does. I think you can be a prism um, that focuses all these different rays of light into something if you're open and yeah. and maybe a, not not thoughtless, but just let it sort of happen in a way. Um, um, I, I know some. There's a couple of young singers I know who who they there's, they don't put their ego. Um, I'm talking about folk singers like like Jackie Oates really and some other people. They just let the music work the way, and it it's like it's coming straight off the field in medieval England. You know, it's 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 such a gift, yeah. and you can do that as a songwriter if you listen to people, listen yeah. to their stories, yeah. and try and reflect their experiences in in an in an honest and not sort of um attention seeking way mm. and then it's about craft it's about okay well, i've used those chords before i've used that rhythm before i've used that instrument before how else can i say the same thing so it's it's you're constantly working at it and you're constantly learning stuff as well which is which is a good thing you know what do you, do you, if you ever get writer's block do you, do you uh, just wait for that to pass or do you have a way of kind of um stimulating yourself into past the writing block writer's block the last time it really happened um i needed four or five new songs and i I found a lovely airbnb down the other side of um salt ash and i went down and stayed at this lovely little place in a little village it, it subsequently got pounded by the westerlies that washed away all the dunes in exmouth it must have been about 2015 long mm-hmm. way home i wrote about six songs okay. i just went away yeah. And I'm thinking of doing that again. Um, I met some lovely people at a place called Bloomsbury Garden Centre in Kent. It, it's full of lovely sort of um, yurts and little pagodas, and and they're a great couple. And I suddenly thought, if I could come away here for three days and tell myself I need to come up with at least five songs, four to five songs, so I might do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to take myself out of the home environment because I live in a house of, of great clamour and noise. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, you know, I've got three kids. Uh, well, they're 21, 19, and 17 now. So yeah. there's a lot going on. Yeah, sure. My, my oldest son, Jack, has just hit about 400 million views on TikTok now. Fantastic. He's got a massive TikTok following. Fantastic. Massive. Yeah, he cool. won't use my bloody music though. So, but, but. <laughs> as in uh, himself, is he a songwriter? Or? No, he, he does little observational comedy things. He's oh, a very great. good. Fantastic. But he's now able to monetize his profile. Brilliant. Uh, so he's and there's something about what he does that I uh, in the storytelling, yeah. self-effacing country boy stories. So, um, so I need to go away to write, or I, I, and if I'm not on the road, if I'm on the road, I can write. So. Um, and then again, I might just drive along, and I suddenly I'll, I hear an expression, and I think, ah, that's that's an expression I can generalize in a poetic sense. Yeah. Uh, and occasionally, and I need to write them down, otherwise I forget them. Um, and then that's that's kickstarting another song, but I've got an awful lot of stuff on the back burner, maybe about eight or nine songs that I'm re- like like do it that I just yeah. need to finish off now. Yeah. Now I generally have like four, three or four. I tend to find for me like songs coming threes. And they will relate to each other and kind of they'll come in threes and they'll be cooking along at the same time. And then they'll kind yeah. of come out as a little group and then there'll be the next yeah. three, you know? Yeah. Um, I've got some fan questions here. I've spoken to some long dogs who would like to ask you a few yeah, questions. Yeah, I saw that. I saw the questions. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. the first one, which I thought was quite an interesting one, actually, was what song from a musical would you sing? A musical? Yeah. Any musical? Yeah, this is Caroline asking this question. What song from a musical would you sing? Sorry to put you on the spot, but I thought it was quite an interesting uh, question, that one. Wow, that's a very good question. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a musical that I... Obviously, I've got Cousin Jack in the Fisherman's Friends musical, yeah. but that doesn't really count. Um, I really love that one in The Greatest Entertainer, when she suddenly... Uh, the, the Swedish opera singer starts singing and everyone is gobsmacked. Take my hand, and you know it's really schmaltzy, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful song. So I'd like that. Um, I used to uh, one of my favorites was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I used to like uh, all of that sort of stuff. But, yeah. um, and um, anything by Sinatra, I think Guys and Dolls. I can't think of anything particular. I'd like to do a a proper crooning song. Um, yeah, I like I like a croon. Yeah, is a good thing. Great, good answer. Okay, another question, if you don't mind, is which you may have just. Uh, this is from Diane. Do you have any unfinished songs that you're sitting on, waiting for the right time? Not the right time. Just waiting for me to get off my ass and finish it. I've got about six actually. Great. I've got about six, and I will get around to doing them. Do it is one of them, uh, and I've got um, yeah. There's there's a few things ready to go, uh, and I will come up with them because I need to make a solo album. Uh, very soon yeah uh i've got about six songs that show of hands have never recorded including the ride and various other things that i will record um so the next thing for me will be a solo album um mm-hmm. and that will have 12 songs on it it probably have eight of mine two covers and two folk songs as a normal sort of uh, balance and, and one more final question from uh your fan base here um this is from anna tole i think that's how you pronounce it um before covid you promised you'd write some more melancholic songs not that we yeah. don't like the jolly trio format but we would really appreciate some heartbreakers like widdicombe fair and the preacher how was how's what would be your answer to that i i'm gonna do that i i, I think 
if I'm not writing for fiddles and mandolins and necessary the show of hands palette, yeah. then I can I think I can go down the singer songwriter path that I so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. vehemently despised earlier and do some emotional landscape stuff mm-hmm. um, because there's no end to emotional energy in the audience, whatever age they are, you know. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I will do that. And, and thank you for the, the kick up the rear from Antonio, whoever, whoever that was. Fantastic. Um, when you, t- this is, I, I was reading your Wikipedia the other day and um, you, as you said earlier, you taught at Bevanston school and one of the people, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but one of the people you at Wikipedia claimed you taught was PJ Harvey. Yeah. Did you, from the point of view of being a teacher, and this is obviously because some, you know, did you have a sense of her great songwriting and kind of spark of creativity at that young age? Could you see that then, or was that something which... No, it, it, it happened in a slightly different way, is that her mum uh, didn't come to me as a... I wasn't teaching at Bemster at the time. Right. Um, I went on to teach there. There was just this... Eva was at the door, and this this girl 17 maybe or with a load of hair all over her face very shy said look uh, do you teach guitar and I just arrived from London and I was like the the punk rocker who lived on the hill um I want will you give my daughter guitar lessons and I said yeah I'd love to um so um we did a deal in exchange for hamstone and topsoil uh, because there Ray and Eva lived just down the road from me and uh, so I think I must have given Polly maybe 12 uh, lessons on guitar um she played me her first ever song her first ever gig we did the village fate at Beminster, and we also played out the bell in ash um i didn't if i'm perfectly honest i didn't spot it i i spotted this incredible musician because I didn't teach her any of the folky chords. I taught her the big sort of C-sharp minors and the big power chords. Yeah. She seemed more interested in them than playing Dylan. Yeah. So um, the big modal shapes, you know, I don't know if, I could, if this guitar's in tune. No, it's not in tune. Eva kept saying um, to me, well, Polly's written some songs, and, and she said, why don't you play them? And Polly didn't really want to. And when Eva was out of the room, I pretended to be looking at some books on the shelf, and I said, I wouldn't mind hearing it. And it was like, fuck. And this, wow. This sort of like primal Fantastic. stuff came out. Fantastic. And I thought, oh, interesting. I don't know where she goes with it. Yeah. And then about two years later, the boys from the pub said, oh, we went to see Polly at Yeovil. God, she's a fucking beast. Unbelievable. <laughs> she was playing with the three-piece band. And then I got the record dry and I realized what she was doing, you know, and I, I I didn't I didn't spot it to be perfectly honest. I, I thought that coming from such a lovely background, she'd settled for her Dorset country life. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, she became <laughs> she became one of the most important indie rock artists yeah. we've had. Uh, and I maybe I had a tiny, 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 yeah, tiny, did. tiny. Of course, you did. Uh, but also, Phil sold her her first guitar as a first electric guitar. Fantastic. When she started working with um, with John Parrish, so. Um, yeah, and we if we we say hello, and I've seen her at some family occasions in the last five or six years as well. Um, lovely but woman, uh, yeah, fantastic. Very... Let me ask you one final question, and thank you very much for um, for being here today. Really appreciate hearing your wisdom and, your, and honesty about your songwriting process. And this is a question which I ask 
everybody which will change from day to day but it's a question if you could have written any other song if you'd spent if you could have spent some time with it going around your head and lived with it by by another artist or songwriter what song here today would you pick as a song you would love to have written and live with um the most perfect pop song ever written is message in a bottle Ah. uh, by the police nice uh i wish i'd written tunnel of love by dire straits lovely not as the up-tempo rock and roll one, but as an evocation of seaside. And I remember the fairground in Exmouth being a sort of lovesick 16-year-old, watching all these confident people interact and feeling, hell, it looks so pretty to me like it always did. I think that is a, an extraordinary evocation of English um, seaside town life and having always lived by the sea. Uh, I do a very, very slow version of that, and, I, and I'll probably do that again, but... I think that's a great song, you know. Um, do, you think yeah, the sea, love love. do you think the sea impacts your songwriting? Yeah, it's in everything, really. Yeah. Time and tides, and, and if ever my wife wants to take the piss out of me, because here we go, time and tides and roots <laughs> and graves and branches and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I've always lived within sight, you know, even if I can see it out the window now. You know, so. yeah. Fantastic. Steve, thank you very much for your time, mate. And, you know, it's really good to, as I said, to hear what you've got to say about songwriting. Oh, one, sorry, one final question. If you had any advice to a songwriter and a piece of guidance or advice to a new songwriter or somebody who's just, you know, wants to write more, what a piece of advice would you give to them? Um, don't imagine there's a lottery ticket moment, um, despite what people say. Oh, they had a friend who had a friend who wrote a song for someone. Are you... I would say there there isn't really, uh, but there's a there is a wonderful journey to the shops <laughs> to see if there is, you know, uh, the, the chance that you'll come up with a. a uh, we make a joke all the time. For example, um, we're off to um, two days time. We're doing a cruise, a, a concert cruise with Richard Thompson. Fantastic! And we're going to be getting on this lovely barge in in Baal and going down the Rhine to Amsterdam and playing two shows a night. And at some point, I will say to Phil. Just think, Phil, just one hit song. Take us away from all this squalor. <laughs> you know, don't don't even think about that. Just, just try and connect with as many people. Work with what you know and love and what you see. And, and, and making music, that's the end in itself. It's a life-affirmative thing to do. And just just be, be lucky, really. And the worst thing you can do is be successful in your 20s because you'll be screwed up forever. And it won't be to your 50s till you get over it, you know. <laughs> oh, there's one last anecdote. This is a great one. About 10 years ago, there was a little thing in the Sunday Times, a day in the life, um, uh, Glenn Tilbrook. Mm. Squeeze. Somebody had gone over to Los Angeles. He was in a great big mobile home people carrier with his wife and their sound engineer. And he was going to do a little theater in Pasadena. And he drove into the theater and he did a lovely show and he got into the, and he went on to the next place. And the end of it, it said, look, you Arctic monkeys and you uh, blurs and you oasis, this could be you in 30 years, but only if you're really lucky. <laughs> and I thought that was exactly it. You know, you're still yeah. doing what you love at a certain age to people enjoy what you're doing. So uh, that's all you can hope for, I think. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate your time. Good. And this is one of the best interviews I've done as well. So oh, well done, you. Yes. <laughs>